Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first 2021 episode of Tech on Reg. Apologies for the brief hiatus, but I think the events of the past several weeks have required some necessary mental respite. Um, But we're back, and I'm pretty excited to start 2021 with an exciting announcement. Uh, The past several months, in addition to putting together content for Tech on Reg uh, and the Provoke.fm family, I've also been really hard at work on a new pod course, Think Like a Lawyer, a 15-episode pod course designed to help everyone better understand the legal world in which we all live and provide some like actual practical information relevant to major life events where you think to yourself, huh, should I be calling a lawyer? Think Like a Lawyer is available now exclusively on Himalaya Learning. Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides an extensive library of courses straight to your ears from the world's greatest minds like Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, and more. Very happy to be sharing in the company of such awesome individuals. So to listen to this course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com lawyer, and I hope to see you there. But now, back to tech on reg business. I really thought there was no better way to start the year off with uh, than with an episode on crypto. Our guest today is Colleen Sullivan. Hi, Colleen. Co-founder and CEO of CMT Digital, a subsidiary of CMT Group, a proprietary trading and investment firm. CMT Digital has been involved in the crypto assets blockchain space since 2013. Welcome to the show, Colleen. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So before we sort of get into all of the all of the things that we want to talk about that are crypto related, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about CMT Digital. Great. Yeah. So CMT Digital is a subsidiary of the CMT Group, which was founded 23 years ago. We're a proprietary trading and investments firm. About two thirds of the business is still in traditional finance. So we've got uh, trading offices in London and Frankfurt. We're headquartered in Chicago. We also do quite a bit of traditional venture and private equity investing. The other third is CMT Digital. We got involved in the crypto space about seven years ago. And like most, it really started with a strong interest in Bitcoin. Um, and I have you know, worked with the CMT founders for a very long time. They actually invested in a startup that I had right out of law school. Um, that startup, it, it ended up taking about seven years to get a rule change through the SEC um, that would allow people with employee stock options to use them as good collateral and listed option hedging transactions. So that, that's kind of the origins of how we met. Um, and that startup was all about democratizing financial products um, for sort of your middle tier employees. And you know, also, so hurra- also hooray for female founders. Just had to, like, <laughs> yeah. had to get that yeah. in. Well, thanks to the SEC, I would say, you know, it, it, taking such a long time to get that rule change through, the, the company ended up not making it. But, you know, that failure sort of turned into an opportunity to then go practice at Sidley Austin in the derivatives group. I then ended up starting my own law firm where CMT was my primary client. So in 2013, when I really became obsessed with Bitcoin, I went to the two founders and said, you know, I, I really think we should take a look at Bitcoin from an investment standpoint. 
And they were like, uh, you're supposed to be our lawyer who's protecting us. You want us to go into this asset for money launderers and drug dealers. And um, so it, it was an interesting start uh, to that process. But suffice it to say, um, you know, everybody got pretty excited about it. We ended up investing in Bitcoin. We then started a proprietary trading desk where, you know, we're trading our own capital globally on crypto spot and derivatives exchanges. And that's really grown over the years, um, especially now that we have more derivatives platforms to trade crypto on. And then from there, we started investing on a venture basis. We've now invested in 45 companies in the crypto blockchain space. Um, so we've been a really active investor. It's been a lot of fun. And we also have an initiative called CMT Digital Labs. Um, and the most recent activity we've had out of that is co-founding the Chicago DeFi Alliance along with Jump, DRW, and Volt Capital. Um, and that has been a lot of fun. So we work with different projects in decentralized finance or DeFi and um, you know, just really work together. I, I think initially we thought that we would be teaching DeFi a lot about traditional trading and what you need to do to attract you know, traditional liquidity to your platforms. But I would say the opposite um, has been more true where we've been learning you know, a lot more than we've been teaching. So we just announced our third cohort earlier this week um, and it has just been an absolutely fantastic experience. I, so love, I guess all the that. love all that action happening in Chicago. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, in the many people, you know, if you have listeners that are used to the proprietary trading world in Chicago, they'll know that, you know, we usually don't talk, right? It's very competitive. <laughs> Everybody's very underground. So to think about like CMT, DRW and Jump collaborating in the traditional proprietary trading world, you know, that just wouldn't happen. But what's so wonderful about crypto is you have these firms that really understand that we're so early and it makes a lot of sense to collaborate and just really help build a strong foundation for the space. You know, there's enough to go around for everyone. And Jump, DRW, they really have the same mindset. It's just been such a pleasure working with those guys. We're really fortunate. Well, it sounds like you're doing really, really interesting, really interesting work, not only at CMT, but, you know, as giving back to the community, like sort of the, the community as a whole. I know you're also very active in sort of the regulatory advocacy realm, you know, obviously I, I sort of forgot that you were a big law refugee like me. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and I always love meeting like particularly like former female big law refugees. Like we all sort of made our way out for all sorts of different reasons, but like me, you were always an entrepreneur at heart, obviously. So I think that's fantastic. And we're definitely going to get into, you know, what 2021 has in store for, you know, the crypto market from a regulatory perspective. I'd like, you know, you have such a unique insight given sort of your, your one role as an attorney, but two, you know, not only your role within CMT, but also having this, you know, hive of, you know, thought leaders in the industry that, you know, I, I don't know how much you can say on anyone else's behalf, but I have to imagine that this is, these are all hot topics of conversation amongst the group and the cohorts uh, that you work with as well. For sure. Yeah. And I think one of the things we'll end up talking about is um, the FinCEN proposed rule. And I can share you know, some of the discussions we had with, um, you know, with the Chicago DeFi Alliance specific to DeFi, 
because as you can imagine, a lot of, you know, projects in the DeFi space were pretty concerned when that came out. Um, and as part of that initiative, we do have a regulatory task force that's led by Jake Shervinsky, who's the general counsel at Compound. And he's just outstanding. I mean, he's in this, you know, every day. So to have someone like him lead that effort on behalf of the Alliance is just uh, remarkable. All right. So FinCEN rule. Yeah. 2021 is going to look like from a markets and regulatory perspective. But before we jump in, I'd like to set the stage a little bit um, for my listeners who maybe aren't just sort of like up to their eyeballs and, you know, crypto yeah. news as the rest of us. I want to rewind to the beginning of 2020. Beginning of 2020, the prospects for Bitcoin and by extension, really cryptocurrency markets generally didn't look all that bright, certainly not as bright as they do today. You know, both Bitcoin and the crypto markets were trying to shake off a little bit of a prolonged price slump yeah. uh, that we were seeing. And, you know, in some people's views, a rise in crypto crime. Uh, so market liquidity generally remained kind of low. Institutional investors were, I think, still a little cautious, maybe not CMT digital, but other institutional investors certainly were um, a little nervous to dip a toe. But then the pandemic happened. There was multiple rounds of seemingly unchecked stimulus spending um, by some central banks. And Bitcoin got a little bit of a shake from, you know, from its from its price stupor, which generally, I think, strengthened its uh, position, the economic proposition of uh, stored value. Generally, uh, that's sort of my that's sort of my outlook. The price coasted past 20,000 uh, past its previous record uh, that was set nearly three years ago. So we'd been dealing with like depressed prices for, for three years. And then early December in 2020 just started skyrocketing. And then right before December, uh, or right before December ended, you've got skyrocketing prices and like a more advantageous market than we've ever seen. And then FinCEN proposes a rule. I like to call that the crypto market's early Christmas present. So Colleen, I'd like you to tell our listeners uh, a little bit about what that proposed rule was. Yeah, no, and thank you for setting the stage because that's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, the beginning of 2020, we had been in a bear market for a good couple of years. And, um, it, you know, it, it seemed like that's, you know, where we were going to stay for a little bit longer. And yes, then the pandemic hit. And it's interesting because, you know, Bitcoin, you know, really, it, it, I would say that in that March period, when everything was just, you know, there's so much uncertainty. We weren't really sure because, you know, Bitcoin stayed correlated with the stock market in that very initial like uncertainty and really just dropped. So you're like, oh boy, you know, Bitcoin isn't really doing what we expected it to do. And then, of course, it just completely changed course. So, um, you know, for a long time, we've talked about how Bitcoin is a very good, strong, you know, hedge against inflation. Um, and so when you have the situation that we've had throughout 2020, where the government is, you know, essentially just printing money um, and you're, you know, devaluing the dollar all along, and then you look over and you have an asset like Bitcoin where that can't happen because it is, you know, stopped at 21 million Bitcoin. That's all that there will ever be. You know, I think that that narrative started to really hit home. 
And, you know, a big catalyst was when Paul Tudor Jones, you know, announced that he was entering the space. He had a phenomenal letter, you know, where he called Bitcoin the fastest horse. I would highly recommend, you know, listeners to, to read that. But the minute that happened, what it did was for the institutions sitting on the sidelines, it sort of made it safe to invest now. Well, if Paul Tudor Jones is going in, I'm not going to get fired for recommending an investment in Bitcoin, right? So it really started to change Paul that Tudor, narrative. crypto influence. Oh, that's what you bet. That's what you bet. And that letter, I mean, when he <laughs> Bitcoin, the fastest horse, you know, you go on crypto Twitter and you just get horse memes all the time because of that. Um, but, but that really was a big catalyst. And then you had the issue with trying to get stimulus money to people, right? Physical checks in a time of COVID, you know, especially in the early days, you're scared about touching paper, you know, does money carry COVID? No one wants to go to a bank. You know, there were all these issues. So could, then, they even, then, could they even go to a bank? That's right. right? Like brand, branches were bank. closing all over the place and everyone had the rubber gloves on. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so then all of a sudden digital money makes sense, right? So what if the Fed or your local bank could send you digital dollars to your wallet and let's say that they want to stimulate the Wicker Park economy. So then they say, okay, here's a thousand digital dollars, and they can only be used in the 60622 area code because we want to stimulate that part of the economy. So all of a sudden, those discussions are you know, taking place simultaneous too. Um, and then you know, it was really fascinating too, because as all of this is happening, in June, a decentralized um, finance project called Compound moved from, you know, sort of its venture capital status to a fully decentralized protocol and DeFi just took off. So you've got your traditional financial system where you're seeing all kind of the, you know, these, these problems are being highlighted because of the pandemic. And you look over on the other side and there's this new financial system being built from the ground up. So to, to add some perspective here, the, the, most significant decentralized exchange in you know DeFi is Uniswap. And in the last 12 months, volumes have grown 47,000%. You know, and one of the primary assets- That seems used, like a lie. 47,000% oh, seems like a lie. How much- It's amazing. We, before, before, um, before we started recording, I think we were comparing that to uh, how gold was behaving. Well, yeah. So, and and that's interesting too because a little, Bitcoin, a little contrast there. Yeah. No. I mean, and it it it, it kind of just fits into this narrative again, where you know, in the last twelve months, Bitcoin is up three hundred and thirty one percent. Gold is up about eighteen percent. So, I mean, I think you start to see this generational shift. Where which asset do you want to have as your hedge? And of course, there's room in a portfolio for both. But I think we're starting to see this shift where it's much easier, you know, you go to the airport and you carry like 12 bags of gold bars or you've got Bitcoin on your wallet. Right. Like it just starts to make sense. Um, so, yeah, it's I, it's well, really but, but the shift. Right. I think I think exactly to your point, the shift is, is there are more people now willing to make room for those crypto assets in their portfolio than there were before. Right. Absolutely. So no one's saying to dump all your gold. We're just saying it, it might be a. For sure. It might be. I mean, like, if you do want to dump your gold, like, I'll take it. Like, that's right. That that's fine. But there's now room and a little bit of comfort. Um, so what did what did Finson drop on you guys right before Christmas? Yeah. 
So FinCEN, so the holidays were an interesting time. Um, and, and to take it back a little bit, we've known, I would say, you know, we've known for a while that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin um, was not a big fan of crypto. And we started hearing rumblings late summer, early fall, that he was actually looking at ways to ban Bitcoin. Now, you know, whether that's true or not, hard to say, I don't know that firsthand, but I mean, I think it probably became pretty clear that there's no CEO of Bitcoin that you can call to try to shut down Bitcoin. You know, it's not going away. It's not um, and, and no, no. <laughs> and then um, from there, we heard that the focus was then on, okay, we can't ban Bitcoin. So let's just ban all self-hosted wallets. Um, and so a self-hosted wallet is just, you know, you holding your crypto for yourself. It's like having cash in your wallet, right? So I hold my Bitcoin in my own digital wallet. So the thought was, okay, well, let's ban self-hosted wallets. Well, you really can't do that either. So then I think the next iteration was, okay, well then let's, it's sort of like operation choke point, right? Let's not allow yeah. regulated financial institutions to deal with self-hosted wallets. And that's kind of where things were shaping up. Um, and then in early December, before, before, be, it, before you go on, just for, for yeah. those who don't know, Colleen's reference to Operation Choke Point was an interesting initiative by the federal government to essentially regulate without regulating, where they were basically identifying certain industries that they thought were hotbeds of activity that they didn't like, criminal activity, and as a way to, um, they, they couldn't do what they wanted uh, directly, so they would work through their financial institutions, their payment processors, and other vendors that did business with them, um, the entities that they could regulate in order to essentially choke them off from, from doing business. And it was a highly effective program for a long time. So um, Colleen's reference there, like this is, it, it, uh, it reeked of the same sort of intent. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And um, what really became concerning in mid-December is it was our understanding that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was pushing to have these new requirements come out as an interim final rule. So basically the proposed rule would come out and it would be final immediately. And um, that, that was obviously problematic. And there are you know, a lot of procedural you know, issues with that. Um, the industry went into full gear, you know, trying to talk to other policymakers, regulators, trying to just stop this and at least get a comment period for the industry rather than having this just be final. It just wouldn't have been practical to comply with. Um, fortunately, that worked, but only to a certain extent. So the proposed rule comes out Friday, December 18th. And FinCEN, which is a division of the Treasury, which issued the proposed rule, gave the industry 15 days to comment, right? And so if you take into consideration- Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. It, oh my goodness, just terrible. So, you know, you take into consideration Christmas, New Year, the holidays, it's eight business days. And typically you would have 60 to 90 days to comment months. on a rule you have, you of have, this you have significance. Months. Yeah. Absolutely. So- it, it, it was really um, a problem. Uh, so, and, and just to give clarity, uh, the, the proposed rule um, itself applies to banks and MSBs, so many service businesses, which you know, FinCEN oversees. And there's two requirements. Um, there's a record keeping requirement that applies to all deposits, withdrawals, transfers, and other transactions involving convertible virtual currency, which we can just kind of say crypto. Um, and then there was a new term that FinCEN put in um, they, they call it LTDA, which is digital assets with legal tender status. 
And really, we just interpret that to include central bank digital currencies. Um, and so the bank or MSB would need to keep records with respect to transactions over $3,000, including the type of crypto involved, name and address of all counterparties. So just hang on to that for a second. And then the hang second on. requirement. Yeah. So the second requirement um, is, is just like the cash um, CTR reports where transactions above 10000 in crypto would need to be reported. So I'm sure everyone is thinking like, oh, that's not a big deal. It's just record keeping and reporting requirements. Why is this concerning? Thanks do that, right? Like, yeah, it's right. It, it's, 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 you know, what's the problem? Um, Here's the twist, so, Colleen. We know there's a twist. I know. Here's the twist. Yeah. So, um, so here's the issues uh, and there are a lot. So, um, but under the proposed rule, so there's obviously process concerns, right? I mean, we went through that, like eight business days to comment. It, it's just not acceptable. Um, and then you get into privacy concerns. So under the proposed rule, you know, the bank or the MSB would need to KYC AML, its customers' counterparties. So it's going to have to gather personal, identifiable information about these counterparties who are not customers. Um, and you know, this is not similar to how cash is treated. So like if I take out $10,000 from Chase, you know, Chase has no transparency what I then do with that $10,000. There'll be a report that Chase issues because I've triggered that threshold. But, you know, if I go donate to a PAC or I give it to my kid's school, like Chase doesn't know and the government doesn't know what I'm doing with those dollars necessarily. So through the type of reporting that FinCEN was requiring here, it would basically enable them to build a giant payment surveillance map. And um, that is you know, a problem. There's Fourth Amendment issues with this. And the irony, too, is that this new term, which includes you know, CBDCs, you know, think about all of the very thoughtful discussions that have been going on about privacy in connection with the United States central bank digital currency. Our good friend Justin Steffen has an outstanding paper going through all of the privacy considerations that have to be thought of before this, you know, technology is put in place to protect our rights to privacy. So this proposed rule, which is bringing US CBDCs into it, didn't even mention privacy. So, you know, there were some serious Fourth Amendment, you know, issues with this too. So it, that was tricky. Um, and then, you know, I think for us, one of the really big concerns is the unintended consequences of the proposed rule on the growth and development of decentralized economies, you know, which would include DeFi or creator and social economies. Um, as you saw in our letter, we included an example of a decentralized version of TikTok just to kind of illustrate where this technology is going and the benefits of that and how the proposed rule could dampen that. And I can go into some of the nuance there if that would be helpful. I mean, we, we can we can touch on that in a minute, but so reading between reading between the lines here. So it's it's a it's a record keeping requirement. And you've done a really good job of saying, no, it's a record keeping requirement, but we're actually doing KYC and AML on parties that these financial institutions would never have done KYC or AML on before because they're not actually customers of the FI. So like that's a that's a, that's certainly a twist and a turn and um, out of the ordinary. So there's the there's the stated reason for why Vincent thinks this needs to be a rule. And then there's the actual reason. What so and 
from what I gather, Colleen, you think part of the actual reason is to sort of create this this map uh, and and to gather this data about uh, individuals, organizations' uh, behavior with these assets, information that they would never have otherwise had. What's the stated reason? Yeah, I mean, I think this. So, well, the stated reason is that. FinCEN, you know, believes that there are some illicit activities going on with cryptocurrencies, and they want to make sure that law enforcement has a view into what's happening in that context. And I don't think you would find anyone in the crypto industry that doesn't agree with that, right? I mean, we don't want that activity in our industry. So we fully support FinCEN's stated goals, I think that, that different are, than the amount of illegal activity that's happening with cash. Oh no. I mean, right? I, so, I, I think it's minuscule compared to what happens with cash. Right. And I, I think that, you know, I, I think that as crypto continues to grow, it's a tricky thing to understand and people are sometimes fearful of it. So I, I think that, you know, FinCEN too, historically has been really good to deal with. So I think that this was a very strange situation with an individual who really does not like cryptocurrency and wanted to do something about it in his final days of office. That's what I think is happening here. Now, the the good news is where we are today is FinCEN has extended um, the comment period. So they've given the industry 15 more days so on generous. the, so I know, right? Well, and the, the Thank you. thanks, Vincent. <laughs> no, you know, and really, like our goal was like let's just get this extended into the Biden administration, and that has happened. So from that context, it feels like a win. And and I I I could be wrong, but I do feel like FinCEN is going to work with us in terms of giving us more time. So and, and it's strange, like I've never, and, and I'd be curious if you've ever seen this. I've never seen this. They've given us. 15 days extension on the reporting and a 45 day extension on the record keeping. So they've sort of bifurcated the proposed rule into two different sections and given two different distinct comment periods. Um, so I, I, I've seen all sorts of interesting things happen, yeah. uh, happen with rulemaking, including like one proposed rule later breaking up into two proposed rules. The CFPB just did that with the issuance of its debt collection rule that it's sort of like broke up. Um, that unlike your very hastily proposed and commented on and hopefully enacted FinCEN rule, um, that process was like seven years long. It was just like, it was like the worst start and stop ever. But that rule ended up getting broken up into two separate, like part of the release was October. And then part of the lease, we also, we also got another Christmas present um, at, at, you know, I think they released that one on like the 20th or something. It was a busy okay. It was a busy end, uh, end of the year uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Lots of people, uh, you know, similar to, uh, you know, Secretary Mnuchin. I think Director Craninger was trying to get some stuff out before she was replaced. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the transition to the Biden administration. And I would kick myself if I had you on the show and we didn't talk about what the transition to the Biden administration and some of the new appointments for key regulatory bodies we think would mean and what they signal for what's to come in 2021 from a regulatory perspective for, you know, for financial services generally, but specifically um, the crypto markets. So 
I'm going to start with a big one. We've got a new incoming SEC chair. We got Gary Gensler, an MIT lecturer on blockchain. I don't want to be so bold to say Gary Gensler, friend or foe, but like I'm sort of going to get I'm like sort of going to get to it. So we've got Gary Gensler, who is clearly technically competent, highly educated on the technology um, under uh, blockchain technology. And he really he has devoted himself sort of uh, immersively to understanding the space on, on a variety of different levels, the tech, the policy, the economics. Um, I know he's testified on uh, digital currency policy in Congress. He's taught at MIT. He had lots of views about Facebook's Libra, now called DM or whatever, whatever project they're calling it these days. But like, he's not exactly a crypto fan, right? Yeah. So let's see. I would say we're going to do, by the way, listeners, we're all going to do this very diplomatically. Colleen and I both have interests that we need to, we need to make sure are covered, but, but there is, you know, Gary's been out in the world speaking pretty publicly about his viewpoint. So no one's throwing shade here. We're just sort of repeating what, what Google has already archived for us. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess if we have to say, you know, if we think about the SEC in isolation, it's hard to get worse than Jay Clayton. So let's start there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think that um, Clayton's position was kind of like, I, I, I just I, I don't want to take the time to get into the weeds with crypto. I don't want anything bad with crypto happening under my watch. And therefore I'm just not going to really do it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it was really challenging. So um, my hope is it's going to be better than, you know, what we're exiting here. And, um, you know, Gensler is deeply substantively knowledgeable on crypto, which I think overall should be a good thing. And what we're really curious to see is obviously the crypto community has an ally in Commissioner Purse. And I think that those two working together could be really interesting. I mean, there are two incredibly bright people who really understand the space. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I think a positive, I think we are more likely to see the approval of a Bitcoin ETF. And that is something that the industry absolutely needs. Because right now what you have going on is you know, re- retail people want to access Bitcoin through their standard brokerage platforms, right? And the easiest thing to access right now are products like Grayscale's GBTC. And, you know, there's a premium that's associated with that product that is not necessarily favorable to retail investors. You also have retail going offshore on unregulated exchanges. So I think, you know, there's been enough maturation in the space from an infrastructure standpoint who's participating, market surveillance, all of that, where I think it's ripe for the approval of a Bitcoin ETF. There's enough. I think we're ready for that. And I think that that's more likely to happen with Gensler as chair. What I'm a little bit concerned about, and and again, like you said, this is all out there in the public record, is I think he has um, a view that most crypto assets are securities. And and that that so has that has that has once you once an asset has that label as a security that prompts a, a, a slew of regulatory oversight requirements cost work oh you bet um and and stress i mean like and and stress quite frankly that 
may or may not be accurate. Like that's certainly his, his viewpoint on it. But there was early on in the crypto days, Colleen, as you well know, there's, there's a lot of like debate, like the traditional tests under the law for what qualifies as security. It's very like square peg round hole types of type situations and trying to fit traditional tests because because Lloyd, I'm apologizing on behalf of the entire profession. Like we're very slow um, at, at figuring out what technology fits into our regulatory environment. And lawmakers are even slower at crafting new legislation around the technology. So we're sitting here with these ancient tests about what qualifies as a security, applying it to technology that like maybe on an element or two will like bear some similarity, but functions completely differently. The market is completely different than, than the way securities have been traditionally regulated. But like the position right now is it's like, all right, well, we're not going to change the test. <laughs> like, like the no, test, yeah, yeah, it's like, we're not going to legislate it, around it. And you raised such a great point because if you asked me, you know, ideally what would make the most sense from a reg standpoint, you'd have new rules and regulations for a new asset class, right? I mean, that's the the right answer. But it, practically, I mean, we're just not going to get there. It, yeah. It's just, it's, it, it's not going to happen. So we're stuck with the regime we have. And to your point, you know, you're taking these new technologies that function completely differently and trying to stuff them in these old rules and regs that never, how could they have ever even contemplated this? And then you've got you know, you've got development in the crypto space happening at the speed of software, right? People from all over the world collaborating. I mean, the development is just unbelievable. It's open source software open to 7 billion people. Like you, it's, it's so, you know, also to your point, it, it, I have a lot of sympathy for the regulators. It's, it's really, really tricky. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate that I get to think about this stuff all day long, but, you know, you think about, you know, the regulators at the SEC and the CFTC, they're managing all kinds of different things all day. And then they've got there's, this weird crypto regular, stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, cause yeah. don't forget everyone. There's just still regular old securities fraud still happening. Yes. All, all the, That's right. right all regular the time. Old securities fraud all still time. happening all the time. Yeah. And, you know, they got to yeah. be worried about the Bernie Madoffs of the world. Um, That's right. And then, you know, add some fancy algorithms on top of that. And yep, no. totally. So, I, I, you know, I think the challenge for the SEC is really going to be like balancing consumer protection, not stifling innovation and seeing it go offshore. Like you and I were talking about before the show, you know, you can't really stuff the crypto genie back in the bottle. And the United States is just one jurisdiction and this crypto is everywhere. So where there are not clear rules of the road, and I really think that's all entrepreneurs are looking for, like, give us a roadmap. We don't want to get in trouble. Just tell us how to not get in trouble. And, and when you don't have that clarity, you go elsewhere to where those rules are clear. Um, and there's just so much potential with this technology for financial inclusion, banking the unbanked. You know, you don't want to stifle it before we even get to the good stuff. Like we're just on the verge of better scalability solutions, better UIs and UXs. Um, so I, you just, you, you don't want to dampen that. And that's my concern. You know, right. if, if we're sort of looking at everything as, oh, it must be this. So therefore these things can't happen. I just think you really start to stifle growth here. Now, I don't think you stifle it elsewhere, but you stifle no. it in the United States. Well, um, you know, we're close to the end of our time. I, I think I'd probably want to end on a high note. So guys, this episode isn't airing until I think it's the 26th, but today we're recording on January 20th. So 
Today, uh, I think we're about an hour shy of Vice President Biden's uh, soon inauguration to become President Biden. So let's let's hope that with a change in our administration um, and really a transition to, you know, uh, you know, Gary Gensler, Rohit Chopra, like a lot of the new appointments for, you know, agencies within our government. I'm encouraged by the fact that like, I love the fact that there is someone with technical competence who's going to be overseeing this. So it's not going to be a question of, of, you know, law, uh, you know, a regulatory director who is uh, uninformed, which has been a different, which was, has been traditionally a different sort of challenge. And as I think as long as, you know, the policy and these, and these assets are guided by inform by real information and real data um, and, you know, if, if President Biden has, uh, you know, soon to be President Biden has said nothing more than wanting to reach across the line and try to some come to some sort of, you know, consensus uh, with industry about how to, you know, repair America going forward. I think so much of the financial technology, crypto assets, fintech in general, um, have the ability to really help um, in that you know, in that endeavor. Um, so here's hoping to, you know, a, a bright 2021. And certainly, guys, you know, 2021 is going to be an interesting year uh, of listening uh, to tech on reg. Our regulatory regime is changing. There's going to be a lot of activity. So please tune in. Um, Colleen, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us to, to kick off our 2021 season. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for having me, Dara.